0: Well, I'm grateful to get the opportunity to minister to you because already today, God has been ministering to my soul in such a significant way. And I know what it's like to show up to a church building feeling like your soul's on empty and then a few minutes in finding out that God had something prepared and planned for you, a meal, if you will of going, hey, you thought you were just going through the motions on a Sunday, but I got stuff prepared. I got a revelation of who I am. I've got a comfort that comes from my love. I've got a vision for the future. I've got something that you were not even planning on blindsiding you. That's what happened to me today when I showed up at church and I'm praying that God just uses me as an agent to do that in your life as we look once again to the Gospel of Luke. This series has been not just convicting, but surprising. I realize it's a little disorganized to be jumping all over the gospel of Luke, but I'm kind of grateful because every time we get together and open to this gospel, it just feels like God's going ahead of us in a lot of ways. A couple of weeks ago, we had a worship night, and not everybody got to be at it because it sold out in like five hours. But uh, Sadie Robertson Huff gets up here, and she's like, I just want to talk to you for a few minutes tonight. And I want to read a scripture from the Gospel of Luke. And I was like, of course. We're just, we're just continuing on with this Luke, the invitation of Jesus series. But we're about to turn a corner this Sunday and next Sunday where we set our eyes on the cross. There's a moment in Luke chapter 9 that says Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. You know, during the ministry of Jesus, there was a turning point where it was like miracles, ministry, teaching. And then suddenly all of it turned with this intention toward going to Jerusalem, not on a trip to attend a festival, but on a mission to die for the sins of the world. He knew why he came and he knew where he was going. And so we're going to set our sights on the cross, but really they've been there. We just haven't realized it. Three weeks ago, I preached on the rich young ruler, and I told you I've been studying that story probably more than any other story in the New Testament. It's just blowing my mind. Every time I read it, I get something new. Well, I preached on that story four times, and then I went home that night, and I got something new, and I was so mad. I was like, oh, I wish I would have known this at the beginning of my studying of this because I read the story of the rich young ruler in the Gospel of Matthew, and it says, as Jesus and his disciples were packing to go to Jerusalem, never realized that when Jesus called the rich young ruler to give away everything and come follow him, they're literally packing their stuff for the final trip, the one where Jesus dies. And it makes, it makes so much more sense. Of course he's like, sell all your stuff and come follow me. He's like, do you know where we're going? We don't have time for you to be thinking about your investments in Caesarea Philippi. Like you, you got to come with us over here because I'm going to die right after that story. Our youth pastor, Tyler Miller, preached on a a parable that Jesus told after that, the parable of the Minas, which if you weren't here for that Sunday, that sermon blew my mind and was like a gut punch of conviction. And even as I I was here that Sunday and I was looking at some of you, I know it was fall break, a lot of you were gone, but I was looking at some of you and like I was so convicted by what God was speaking, but I could tell some of you weren't. And I was like, oh, they didn't get it. They, They don't understand what he just said. Like, like Maybe they heard the story and they heard the explanation, but they don't get what what was going on there. Here's what Tyler explained from the parable of the meanest. He explained that Jesus told this parable about what you and I steward in this life and how, how we steward whatever we're given, resources, relationships, our lives, how we steward whatever's ours in this life will lead to how we experience eternity in heaven. By the way, at ACC, we don't believe heaven is an eternal church service. We believe the biblical version of heaven, which is heaven comes and invades earth and the earth is in resurrected form and we live forever with jobs and relationships and bodies. Like we live forever. And Jesus is like, hey, how you steward what's given to you in this life will determine what's given to you and what you steward in heaven. And I'm sitting there in the front row going, oh my, we have been given a lot. And the fact that Jesus said that on the way to the cross, He's going to die. And he's like, hey, just make sure you, you keep watch over what I entrust to you because what you do with it now leads to how you're gonna experience forever. Bye. And I'm going, hold on. And some of y'all, after Tyler preaches that word, you're sitting in here looking like it was all right. I, I'm going to a church that has been given what we have been given to people who have been entrusted with what we have been entrusted, man, how are we not sobbing in front of Jesus going, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to be faithful, God. So today and next Sunday, we're going to set our sights on the cross. Next Sunday, we're going to the literal cross, the crucifixion. Today, we're going to talk about what Jesus had to say about the cross before the cross. You know, Jesus talked about it before. And he didn't talk about him dying on it. He talked about you dying on it. Today's sermon is called The Cross of Discipleship. And we're going to talk about one of the most misunderstood doctrines in all of Scripture. The cross. There's few things more important in your belief system than what you believe about the cross, by the way. What you think about when you see a cross, whether it's our trendy, curvy cross or a more traditional cross. (laughs) Somebody messaged me this week and was like, does the curvy cross have a hidden meaning? Is it like the crown of thorns in the shape of a cross? No, it's just something a college student made a couple years ago. We thought it looked super cool. Um, But you can make a hidden meaning. I think that would be cool. Um, We're gonna talk about what we believe about the cross and what Jesus had to say, because I believe this is an area where at best, we have an incomplete and partial view, and at worst, Jesus's intention is completely lost on us. When you read what Jesus had to say about the cross before he ever died on a cross, you will be dumbfounded to discover how much your response has to do with what he was doing 2,000 years ago. Did you bring your Bible to church this morning at all of our locations? If you have your Bible, hold it up, hold it up. Okay, people have reached out. They've told me that formals are happening and uh, that people need dates. And so if you currently need a date for an event that is coming up, keep your Bible in the air. This will be a larger crowd as the day goes on. You're like, I kind of need one. He needs one and you need one. Y'all too, right here. Meet after service. All of our other locations. I hope that was relevant. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 25. And we are going to read an entire section of Scripture, but we're actually going to go one verse at a time through the first three and walk very slowly through what the Son of God is saying here. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. If you see the heading in your NIV or ESV Bible, it says the cost of discipleship or the cost of being a disciple. That was the title of a book written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. During World War II, and I highly recommend it to you. But I called this sermon the Cross of Discipleship because I want you to see the cost you are invited into and I'm invited into. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. If you're there, say, I'm there. Here it is. Just one verse at a time. Don't read ahead. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, Stop right there. If you're new, You do not have to participate in this exercise. But if you've been coming to ACC for a while, look at that verse. Look at it on the screen. Look at it in your Bible again. Don't look ahead. You are trained, indoctrinated to know that when Jesus is gaining a large following, he has this annoying, dangerous tendency of doing the opposite of what someone who is trying to start a movement would do. Every time Jesus has got a large crowd, it's like he turns and has something to say that breaks up the following. Jesus is not an influencer looking for more followers. Jesus is the opposite. He's like, how do I say something that's offensive enough for the fake ones to leave me alone? Okay. Sermon on the Mount. He's got this big following. Everybody wants to hear it. What's the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus turning the culture of the day upside down on its head and going, my kingdom is the exact opposite of everything about the way you're living. And here's how you participate in it. Parable of the sower. That's how we started this whole series. He's got this huge following and he's like, you know, there's four different responses to hearing the word of God and three of them aren't good. Make sure you be careful how you listen and make sure your heart is good soil for the word of God to grow and produce a fruit. It's like, it's, it's never a you know what, we got a lot of seekers in the audience and we just need to make sure they feel good about the process of what they're getting into. So let's make sure we, we sort of water down and tailor the message so that they know it's okay. This is all normal. Jesus has no time for that in his ministry. He's like, ooh, large following. Ah, they might not get it. They might not get it. So if you've been coming for any amount of time, what is he about to say? Is he about to say something? that could potentially lead to people going, yeah, this is way harder and way different than I thought. Oh, you better believe it. In fact, this one's more intense than all the other ones combined. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Classic Jesus. Large following? Oh, I need to say something. What does he do? He reaches for the closest relationships in a person's life 2,000 years ago. Luckily, that's mostly still true today. It was way more true 2,000 years ago. Jesus is not advocating for hatred or violence against one's family. So if you're here and you can't stand your family and you're like, thank you, Jesus. I needed that reminder of it being okay. No, 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 that's not what it's about. It's about reaching for... Your highest level of allegiance and loyalty. Sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, husbands, wives. Jesus like, think about the relationship that means the most to you. Your discipleship, your apprenticeship to me, which is really what that word means, your willingness to follow me. That level of allegiance compared to your allegiance to your most loyal relationships in this life. These relationships need to look like hate in comparison to this relationship. That's what he's saying. Here's where I draw the line. Most of you are probably following me right now because of miracles I did or rumors that you heard. You just need to know. The standard, the bar is the relationships that mean the most to you look like hate in comparison to your allegiance and loyalty to me. He's raising the bar of discipleship. And then he says this, verse 27. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, you and I have 2,000 years of church history to keep us from feeling the weight of what Jesus is saying. We got crosses on every corner, on most of the church buildings we attended growing up. There's one, like I said, a little trendy, but it's on this building right now. Like We hear the cross and we think about a certain reality. Doesn't it strike you as odd that before Jesus ever went to the cross, before Jesus even referenced that he has a cross. He said, you have a cross. Whoever does not carry their own cross. Now, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus says this, this is not a romanticized vision of Christianity. This is an instrument of public execution contrived by the Roman Empire to maximize physical and social punishment simultaneously. How do we make sure someone hurts the most physically and hurts the most socially? They can die. Naked in front of everyone they know while they hang and suffocate on a piece of wood, as a reminder of the power of Rome and what will happen to you if you ever turn your back. Humiliating, deprecating, torturous. And Jesus says, Your allegiance to me, I'm raising the bar. And you just need to know if you come, you get a cross. So I think of like that meme. Of Oprah Winfrey, it's like, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. Like Jesus, in his ministry, is just, you get a cross, you get a cross, you get like, that's literally what he's passing out, literally what he's selling. And I think we have a dangerous tendency of not seeing this invitation from Jesus, because our minds are so blinded by what we've been taught growing up. We're going to put a cross on the screen, not the curvy cross, more traditional one. There it is. And uh, by the way, this is going to make some of you so happy. We are putting a cross, not the curvy one, a traditional one, on Hamilton Road, and it's going to be powerful. No, no one's excited about a cross on the building? Okay, I am. Party of one. Yes. It's more awesome than y'all just reacted. It must, must be an early service thing. Okay, now when you think about this, here's what we're going to do, and for everyone listening on the podcast, I'm going to explain what they're taking in visually. We're going to put a word on each side of the cross, and I'm going to ask you to just go there in your mind with association. And just for a second, as you see these words, ask yourself, which one is more my leaning when I think about the cross? And I'm gonna have to say them out loud because of the crowd that's listening on the podcast so we can participate in this. But those two words, as we put them up there, are substitution and invitation. Substitution and invitation. And the question I want to ask right now is which one of those words more closely defines what you have come to know and believe about the cross of Christ? Substitution or invitation? I would venture to guess that over 90% of us would lean towards substitution. That what we've been taught about the cross is that Jesus died there in our place. And good news, if you're here today and you're worried about me about to commit heresy, potentially, that's true. Jesus did die as a substitute. Substitutionary atonement is something that we are all about as a church. The New Testament calls Jesus the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? It means his blood was payment before a holy God. That those who are in Christ have an account before God that has been cleared By the blood of Jesus. The problem with just that definition being entrenched and ingrained into our understanding is if that's all you have on one level, you miss out on the responsibility that is yours in light of the atonement, the invitation. See, Jesus substituted for us mandates a response. So we grew up here in what? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever, what, believes in him will have eternal life. The problem is the way we learned about the cross was in such a way where Jesus dies on the cross for us and our level of participation is this thing called belief or faith. But what was demonstrated about said belief or faith was a prayer at a vacation Bible school or a response at a promise keeper's retreat or a moment at a passion conference. And we thought, Jesus substituted for me. He died for me. What do I have to do? Just believe, just trust, justification by faith alone. Once again, not bad things, but incomplete definition. See, the word belief or faith in the New Testament was not a word for having one moment of intellectual agreement. It was a word for banking your life. The word was fide in Latin, good faith. It means like when you make a deal in good faith, that there's something happening on the other side. Not that God is partnering with you for you to be saved. Jesus does it all but that there is a responsibility in your gratitude for what Jesus has done for you, namely an invitation to come and die with him. So it's both of these things. It's not one or the other. In fact, I would argue they go hand in hand. The substitutionary death of Jesus mandates an invitation for you and I. And when you see Jesus dying and your level of faith is, thank you for doing that for me. I'm so glad I didn't have to. Your perspective has to shift a little bit to, hold on, what you're doing for me as my rabbi, as my teacher is a demonstration for me to learn the pathway into life. Here's here's a good way to say it if this is getting complicated for you. The cross is not just a location where Jesus died for you. The cross is your invitation to come and die with Jesus. The cross is not just a location where Jesus died for you. Just believe it, just pray it, just sing it. No, it's an invitation. Hey, I'm, doing the, I'm going first, but we're all going. You get across, you get across, you get across. I'll show you how to do it, but you're coming with me. Now, just ask yourself, if that is the original message of Christianity, how in the world do billions of people, including some of you, decide to say yes to that invitation? Think of invitations that you've gotten, weddings, birthday parties, favorite things to do. The invitation of Jesus is a cross in your mailbox and it's for you to come die with him. How in the world does this message go viral and lead to billions of people going, yeah, that's what I want? It's because of a level of understanding that when you're invited to come and die, you're invited into the only path that leads to truly living. And in Luke, a few chapters before Luke chapter 14, Jesus explicitly tells you why embracing the cross and taking up your cross is the best decision you will ever make. Go back there to Luke chapter nine. If you have your Bible in front of you, if you don't, we're gonna have it on the screen. We're gonna be in Luke chapter nine, verse 23. And this is gonna sound familiar. I hope that in these uh, sermon series on the Gospels, you're noticing how often Jesus repeats certain things. He was kind of a repetitive teacher because he didn't have a podcast. Like he literally had to go to cities and go, yeah, I already said this before, but I gotta say it to you guys now because you haven't heard my whole illustration about worry or you haven't heard my whole going into this. Yeah, he had his message about the cross and this was his go-to. Verse 23, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily, notice the word daily, Luke's gospel is the only one that includes that word, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Here it is, y'all, here it is, here it is. This is the secret to understanding why the cross of discipleship is something you need to throw your arms around, not run in the opposite direction away from. Because Jesus, once again, explains, if you want to be my disciple, here's the price tag. Here's what it's going to cost you. Highest level of allegiance, a commitment to dying, even in the most horrible way. But the reasoning is all in the middle. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, will save it. Jesus is saying the pathway to the life you desire is throwing your arms around a cross. And when I talk about a cross, I'm not just talking about physically dying. I'm talking about the spiritual act of embracing death as a necessary pathway that leads to life. So we need to be careful at Auburn Community Church because we're, we're going down a dangerous road where we are not starting to pride ourselves, but we're starting to ring the bell of radical Christianity a lot here. Hey, we actually read the passages that are difficult to read. We're actually trying to apply this to our lives and see life change happen. We're actually defining discipleship as Jesus defined discipleship, but we need to be careful at ACC that we don't become a cult of radical Christianity where it's like, oh man, you're, you, you just don't get it. You're just not surrendered enough. You're, you, you're just not in enough. You're just, oh, oh you, you're still living that way. You haven't given that up and surrendered that to God. No, the idea isn't to raise the bar so high that you become exclusive. The idea is to explain the true pathway that leads to life. Jesus is not trying to start something to go, oh, are you really in? Do you really love me? Hmm, we'll see, because now the bar is not just praying a prayer one time. Now it's dying naked in front of everyone you know. You still in? No, Jesus is not doing that. He's going, I understand the human condition, and I understand the only way to get you where you need to get, namely, which is back to the garden in right relationship with your father, is for you to go through something called death. What was the punishment for death in the garden? Do not eat. From this tree, Adam and Eve, or you will what? Surely die. Scripture teaches the wages of sin is death. But we've come to believe that's why Jesus died for us, so we wouldn't have to. And now new life comes just by trusting and believing him. Oh, oh, Jesus did pay the penalty for death, but he also paved the pathway to life. And the pathway is a cross. See, you can hear you will surely die two ways. You can hear it as a punishment or you can hear it as a path. You will surely die. And Jesus is going, the only way to life is if you come with me and learn to die well. And as you learn to die well, you'll start to live. I want to make this make sense to you. This is not a one-time decision. This is a daily choice. That's why Luke chapter 9 says, take up your cross daily. You're like, Miles, what in the world does this mean? I'm not trying to measure your faith on how surrendered you are based on some sort of uh, objective measurement where we can go, you're in, you're not, you're in, you're not. I'm trying to show you in your daily life what it means to be a Christian. So let's just use a couple of examples from everyday things that you're struggling with. I'm gonna name some things that certain people in the room are struggling with. Once again, might not be you, but if you're a human being, it's you. I use like universal ones, okay? So take the example of being hurt by someone you love and care about. Anybody in here ever been betrayed? Anybody ever been stabbed in the back? Anybody ever had something where because of how much a person meant to you, their act of hurt against you went incredibly deep? Like someone who didn't know you that well could have done the same thing, but because it was them, It made it so much worse. You ever been hurt? You ever been burdened? You ever felt disappointed in your parents? You felt disappointed in your kids? You ever felt that like invasive, ah, I just am so angry at him, at her, at them. You ever felt that? Okay, this is the invitation of Jesus. Take up your cross. What does that mean? That means you have a two-way street you can go when you're hurt. You can grab on to life, which looks like bitterness which looks like hatred. It, what's our knee-jerk reaction when we get hurt? Hurt back. And maybe I won't hurt back by what I say back. Maybe I'll hurt back by passively, aggressively ignoring them or unfollowing them or just moving on with my attention. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll grab life by just pretending like I'm, it doesn't bother me anymore, even though I know it bothers me more than anything. I'll grab onto it. I'll manipulate it. I'll control it. And then it'll lead me to life. What you'll find is when you grab for life on your own terms, according to your own sinful response, what you'll find in there is emptiness and death. What you'll find in there is more bitterness. What you'll find in there is, oh, I'm actually not getting better. I'm getting more bitter. But Jesus goes, oh, you've been hurt. Here's a cross. Absorb it. Grieve it. Cry about it. Be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. Forgive them, really release them, whatever process it takes to get there. You might have to draw boundaries in the relationship to not get steamrolled over and over again, that's wisdom. But like literally, you're not walking around worried about running into them because of all the feelings that are gonna, no, you're gonna release them and here's what you're gonna do, you're gonna die as you do that. You grab onto that cross, it's awful. But on the other side, you get to wake up in the morning walking in freedom, not imprisoned by your own bitterness toward the people who hurt you. You get to experience what? Life, why? Because you embraced death. This This is the way of Jesus. You get a cross, bear it, let it hurt. Let the pain hit you and release them. And then you'll be free or do it your own way, then you'll be a slave. It's not middle ground, a little bit of both. It's life or death, death or life. One leads to the other. This is the paradox of the Bible. Grab onto life, lose it. Grab onto death, gain it. Another example, that, that, that one's just like getting hurt by people you love. Here's another example. Sinful desires that exist within your body, spirit. Your desire to do things that are contrary to the ways of God. Hello, you're in a sinful body you'll wake up in the morning and naturally desire things that the scriptures teach and that Jesus himself teaches are not good for you. So what do you do? You have a choice. Grab life or grab death. If you reach for life, that's gratifying those desires. Here's what you're going to find. Happiness. And it's going to be very temporary. You're going to find a level of joy that's superficial. And you're going to go, here, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to take in all the sexual exploration I can handle. I'm going to take in all the all the things that money and greed and status can gain me. I'm gonna feel what the world has to offer me. I'm gonna go for it and grab onto what my desires tell me are good for me. I'm grabbing onto it. That's life. That's where it's found. You squeeze that out for all that it's worth. Here's what you'll find. Emptiness, loneliness, depression, isolation, guilt, shame. It's not there. The other option What's the invitation of Jesus? Come die with me, take up a cross. You mortify the flesh, crucify the flesh. Paul says, I no longer live because I have been crucified with Christ. But the spirit of God, the life of Jesus lives on the inside of me. So what what do you do? I can take those desires before God and go, God, more than I desire this, I desire the deep desires that come from being in a right relationship with the one who made me. And so I'm putting this to death. I'm gonna do whatever it takes to walk in righteousness. I'm gonna walk in purity. I'm gonna learn what holiness means and I'm not gonna do it perfectly but I'm committing my life to crucifying the desires that exist within me to to the things that are contrary to you. Here's what you'll find on the other side of that. Life, fulfillment, joy, relationships, purpose, meaning. Everything you wanted originally but what'd you have to do? Grab a cross. Crucify mortify those desires that are against you another example third example weird example aging the loneliness and the isolation that comes with imminent death we live in bodies that expire because of our sinful condition and you watch particularly in our culture humanity fight this off what do we do we try to stay young as long as we possibly can just trying to preserve some semblance of youth. And actually, I do think some of that endeavor is a good thing. I think it's good to make sure while you're alive, you're healthy and vibrant as best to your ability. So don't view that as a bad thing. But I do think there's a line that you cross when your whole life is in fear running from the inevitable. Life begins and ends the same way as a sign to us to be humble. We begin our lives as helpless infants and if God wills it, we end our lives as helpless elderly. And so there's a part of you that can take that reality and reach for life. And go, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm never going to think about that. I'm never going to embrace that. I'm going to do everything I can physically and buy everything that I can to make sure I preserve my life as long as I possibly can. And you live your life with that kind of fear and that kind of an endeavor. What happens? You grab onto your life and then what do you find? You lose it. You're more afraid than you are fulfilled. You're more running from than you are running toward. Absent of purpose, absent of meaning, scared, alone. But you embrace it. Talk to an old person, particularly in our church, who's thrown their arms around the cross and gone, I know, I'm going to see Jesus soon. You're going to find the most content, at peace, human being you've ever looked at in your life. Because they've thrown their arms around the cross. And they're going, this is mine to bear. And there is a loneliness and there is a fear and there is a part of this that I don't wanna face. But the more I throw my arms around this, the more I find the freedom to live. The cross bids me come and die that I may live. So everybody look up here. I realize it's just every week. It's like, oh, this is super intense. This one, whoa. Here's what I wanna say. The offer, the invitation is yours. Die to live or live to die. But the good news is, this is an imbalanced offer. It's so imbalanced. It's not pain on an equal level. It's not, well, either way, you're going to die, so you might as well live, eat, drink, and be merry, and then experience death after that. Or, you know, you might want to sacrifice, and it's going to be hard, but then it'll get better. Guys, this is not equal. The scales are so tipped toward life on the other side of death. If I could get you a vision of this, you would never choose sin over the son of God again. If you could see it with spiritual eyes. This is what Jesus wins means, by the way. Jesus wins is the headline of the human story. Colossians one, supreme, head over all things. But when it becomes the headline of your story, it's when you go, whoa, this way is better. Here's your choice in life. A momentary fleeting feeling of being alive. Everlasting emptiness in death or a moment, a literal split second of sacrifice for a lifetime of meaningful, fruitful freedom. It's not balanced. It's so tipped toward the side of, just embrace death for a second. Jesus, just make it. Just make it to six hours. You gotta hang on that Roman cross and endure the wrath of God. If you do that, You know what's coming. Do you want to know what held Jesus on the cross? The joy set before him. That's what Hebrews says. Why? Because he knew what he was doing. He was going, this looks like it's going to last, but it's not. I know what's coming. This is the best deal you could ever make with your life. I'm laying it down. Give me the cross. Wait, what? Give me the cross. This is like just that much. And then everything. It's just a minute. Every time I have ever crucified my flesh and gone through with it, I go, whoa, that wasn't that bad. And this is so much better. But you got to just make it through that. Okay, I'll take, I'll take the cross. I'm in. This is the cross of discipleship. I want us to get this. we got two points in seven minutes. Are you ready? Two things I want you to do with this. Look at somebody next to you say, I'm ready if you're ready. I'm ready if you're ready. Number one, very simple, and I believe it's the purpose of this passage. Count the costs. Count the costs it's super rare for us to actually talk about the cost of discipleship before people become Christians. Most of the time we want to push people into believing in Jesus and then tell them about what they're going to have to sacrifice after, like a good salesman does. And so it's like, it's just all free. You just believe it. And then they they get baptized. It's like, actually, you got to give up everything. Crazy. Um, I think what Jesus intended is for people to know that on the front end. Before they jump in, before you get into the water and get baptized, before you tell your story. And so that's why Luke 14, if you're back there where we originally started, Jesus says this in verse 28. This is the next part. He's illustrating what he said earlier about the cross. He said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Jesus uses two illustrations, one of a construction worker and one of a king. And he says, hey, if you're in construction, you're going to build a building, what do you do? You sit down, you figure out, do I have the resources to build what I'm getting into? This is literally the journey we went on with Hamilton Road a few years ago when we bought the land. It was like, what do we need to build? How much money do we have? And both of those were constantly going back and forth of, I don't know if we have enough to support this. And I think, I don't, whoa, what's this going to look like once we build this? But the whole time you're asking the question, you want to look like a fool, start building something that you don't actually have the resources to finish. And Jesus says, same way for a king who's about to go to war. you got 10,000 men, 20,000 are coming after you. You're not going into that fight. You're going to send delegation to go, hey, can we work this out? Because I don't have the resources to fight the fight I'm about to get in. Jesus says, this is a moment you must have before you commit to following him. And then he tops it off in verse 33. You need to just take this in. When he says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. It's so funny to me that Luke 14, is not posted anywhere. No one Instagrams this. No one gets a tattoo of this. No one goes, Luke 14, 33. Jesus' invitation. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. This is Jesus going, you got to count up whether or not it is worth it in your eyes to say yes to me. Now, if you're here and you're tired of hearing the 34 year old pastor on stage talk about surrendering everything in order to be a Christian and how this is the basic standard for Christianity from 2000 years ago. And you're like, I'm not ready for that. That does not mean that you are not a disciple. Pay close attention to me. When Jesus gave this message, his disciples were not put, put verse 33 back up there for me, please. Jesus's own disciples. were not there. Think about it. The night before Jesus died, Peter's reaching for a sword, cutting off people's ears. He's denying him three times. He wasn't ready to give up everything he had. The process of staying with Jesus led to the surrendered place that gave us the Peter in the book of Acts who preaches at Pentecost. So I gotta say this, if you're watching on a screen right now, if you are in this room and you're at Auburn Community Church and week after week, our church is a constant reminder to you of how many things in your life need to get surrendered to God, do not drop out. Welcome to the club. I'm there. You're there. Very, very, very few of us are in that place where it's all on the altar. It's all on the table. We're on a journey. And I think some of us are getting closer and closer and closer, but stick with it. Count the cost and go, okay, it costs this. Embrace the fact that you're not there yet, but don't embrace staying there. That would be my encouragement. Embrace that I'm not I'm not there. I'm not a full surrender yet. I'll admit it, I'm not there. But I'm also not content with staying where I am. I'm coming. And the more I get to be around Jesus, the more I fall in love with him. This is an invitation to joy. This is an invitation to experience life as it was truly intended to be lived. So when I say count the cost, you got to do that two ways count the cost of following Jesus, but also count the cost of not. This is just extra, it costs more to not follow Jesus. That's the whole sermon today. It ends up costing you exponentially more to say no to the invitation to the cross. That's the paradox. That's why you gotta see it with spiritual eyes. So yes, count the cost, but on the other side, count what it's gonna cost you if you turn him down. It's one or the other. I want Jesus or I don't. And if I'm going after him, I'm spending my life on the journey of becoming more like him. Last thing I'll say about this point, if you're wondering what does full surrender look like, it does not look like selling everything you have. It looks like asking the question, if Jesus lived in your body, would your life look like what it looks like right now? And whatever gap there is between those two things, that is your journey of discipleship. And that's not to say, what would a 33-year-old Jewish man be doing in my body? No, Jesus is the true embodiment of the real you. So what Jesus is gonna do in you is gonna be different than what he's gonna do in me. There's personality involved. But the question is, how does the life of Jesus manifest itself in my life? That's what full surrender looks like. And if you're here and you're like, I'm not ready to reorient my entire life to finding the answer to that question. Be honest about where you are, count the cost, but know this, you are not a Christian yet. You're not there. Christians go, I wanna reorient my entire life around Christ in me being cultivated, and I want to become more like him over time. Count the costs. Number two, embrace the cross. Embrace the cross. We're really going to do this as we take communion today, but I just want to encourage us that what happens in dying is intimacy. Paul talks about the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings, I want you to know today that bearing the cross isn't just about the life that you experience after it, but about the intimacy you experience during. You get called in to more of Jesus and you get to go back to the garden when you embrace the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because if you eat this fruit, you will surely die. But Jesus knew, if you don't run from and embrace death, and surrender your spirit to God the Father, now you have a pathway back to where you should have been all along, which is what? Unashamed relationship with the Father. Embracing the cross is not about demonstrating your martyrdom or I'm willing to follow you anywhere, Jesus. No, you sound like the disciples who are actually fickle. It's about, give me that cross. Because if I embrace that, I get him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So give me that cross. That's what we're doing every week when we take communion. You can grab those elements right now. Hopefully you got them on the way in. If you didn't, you can raise your hand right where you're at. If you're not a believer in Jesus today, no pressure at all. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand. Some of our team will bring one your way, but I think most everyone got them. Uh, this is a, a pretty simple uh invitation to take communion today substitution and invitation let's be equally both husbands as always pray over your wives but this is the body of christ broken for you this is the blood of jesus shed for you may you and i take in this moment remember the sacrifice but also remember what we are called to let's do business with god michael's gonna play a song just over us i'll just ask that until they invite us back in just stay in this moment of taking communion and then we'll come right back and worship together.